All right, folks, it's our eighth and final session of Equip. You'll rotate after next week. There'll be an uh, evangelism training that Pastor Jay is doing that's open to everybody in our church. So I'd encourage you to uh, come to that. And the following week, you'll rotate to uh, the next group and a new group will move in here uh, with me. For our last uh, time together, we're going to talk about something a little different. Uh, really what kind of makes us distinct as Baptists. So we've been talking about the doctrine of the church now uh, for a couple of months and really what makes the church who it is. And we'll now kind of narrow down a little bit together and think just really briefly, I'm going to have to move very quickly through this today, about what makes Baptists distinct and, and why we still think that's uh, important and really a good thing for us. And so that's where I want you to start talking uh, today in your tables or at your tables, there's an opening discussion qu question there that's on the handout you got as you were coming in. It says, while there is only one true universal church, which we've established, right? There's the invisible church that only God sees. The local church, the visible church, tends to divide itself by doctrine and practice into denominations and conventions and I think that's a good thing. I, we are one. We are part of a convention. The Southern Baptist Convention is not technically a denomination, but it is a convention. It's a group of churches. So why do you think that's a good thing? That's what I'd like for you to do now, is talk at your tables for just a few minutes about why you think, even though the universal church is one, there is one universal church, why is it good that in this time where we are waiting for the Lord's return and we are seeking to accomplish his mission for his church, that we actually do group together by doctrine or by practice and oftentimes by both of those. So take a minute, talk about those things, and I'll bring us back together. All right, so what we want to do now is talk about historic Baptist distinctives. We uh, when you look out on the landscape of denominational life, there's a lot of crossover. Obviously, there should be uh, unanimity in first-order doctrines, those things that we establish that make us Christian, that we say this is what the Bible says a Christian is. Uh, and for a church to be a church, that church needs to hold to those uh, first-order distinctives that uh, and, and so we would agree with those, just really kind of across the landscape of uh, Protestant Christianity. We all together hold those things. And when you get to second order, uh, second order doctrines, which we often refer to as denominational distinctions, we start seeing some division. But even then, there are there are some overlaps. There, are, we're not the only denomination that practices congregationalism. We're not the only denomination that practices. Um, uh, the regenerate church membership or that does the Lord's Supper the way that we do it or thinks about elders and plurality of elders the way that we do. We're not the only one. There's, there's lots of overlap there and there's going to be some overlap on some of the things that we're going to see today as these ideas have grown from being anomalies historically to being even dominant positions uh, within some still even within Christianity uh, as it's as it's kind of portrayed within our culture, uh, but I want us to talk just quickly through uh, five different 
um, Christian ideals that really were distinct for Baptists and I think still are distinct for Baptists. They're, they're why we are who we are. They're the things that have been important to us from, from early on. And so all of these, as, as we've tried to establish for the last eight weeks, all of this is intended to, to have a biblical fidelity to it, that, that our goal is not to just come up with something that sounds good to us, but, but that we would uh, be distinctly people of the Bible. And while that's not in your notes as one of the distinctions, that is certainly a Baptist distinctive. Um, it, it's a distinctive, I would hope, of Protestantism as a whole, is that we, uh, churches that hold to orthodox understanding of Christianity, do so because we believe that's what the Bible tells us. And then from there, there's just some decisions that we make and there's some ideals that we hold to be true that have kind of developed into who we are as Baptist people. So I'm just going to quickly kind of run through some of these. I taught on this in a much more uh, comprehensive way about three years ago, and that um, I believe is still on our Equip podcast, and you could go listen to those uh, if, if you would like. And I'm not sure if we were doing that back then or not, but you could check it out and see if, if it's on there. I believe we called that series Distinct. It was pre-COVID, though. So... The first is soul freedom. Soul freedom means that each person is competent under God to make his own moral and religious decisions and is responsible to God in all manners of moral and religious duty. Let me repeat that quickly. Each person is competent under God to make his own moral and religious decisions and is responsible to God in all matters of moral and religious duty. This means that you are responsible for you. And that I am responsible for me. This begins scripturally all the way back at the beginning. Genesis 1.27, when God created man in his own image. We're told in the image of God, he created them, male and female. So men and women, all of us, have the responsibility to bear the burden of our own decision. We are competent for our own moral and religious decisions, and we will be held responsible for those decisions. No one's going to be able to say, well, I wasn't, I can't be held responsible because I didn't know. No, you're, you're held responsible. You, uh, you're not going to be able to point the finger at someone else and say, well, they didn't tell me or they didn't help me. You and I are all responsible because we are image bearers of God. We bear that responsibility and we are conscious decision makers. We don't live in a deterministic world. We don't believe in a deterministic theology. Now, we do believe in providence. We do believe in God's sovereignty, that God knows all things that will happen and that all things happen under the providential hand of God, that he is in control of his creation. But he created humans with um uh, with the ability to make conscious decisions that we have what is known as moral agency, the ability to choose right and wrong. 
We go back to the Old Testament when Joshua stands before the people in Joshua chapter 24. And he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What, what is Joshua's challenge to the people? To practice moral agency, to choose right from wrong, to choose to serve God or to choose to serve false gods, but that they would be held accountable to it. Paul, in his kind of outset argument in uh, the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed against now, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his, ine- his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, what Paul does is Paul looks back on history kind of looking back on the challenge of Joshua, not in a specific sense. He's not actually referencing that that challenge from that period of Israelite history. He's just looking at the broad scope of uh, history and seeing what humans have done. Humans have, in the main, chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. And what Paul says is they will be held accountable For this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against them. And the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against them because they made the choice. They have the ability. They have the soul freedom. Sometimes this is known as soul competency. They have the ability to choose to serve God or not. And based on what we choose, we are wholly accountable to God as individuals. You are accountable to God for your choices. You are accountable to God for whether you choose to serve God or not. All will be held accountable for what they do with the gospel. Do they believe the gospel unto salvation or do they deny the gospel and stay under the wrath of God? Jesus, in his nighttime visitation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee that's coming to him with good questions, says the most famous Bible verse in the world, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But it doesn't end there. Jesus continues, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus is very clear. There are going to be those who accept Christ 
hear the gospel, believe it unto salvation, and there are going to be those who do not, and because of their sin, they stand condemned already. Each person, each individual, man, woman, boy, and girl, is consciously able to do so, has the sole freedom to choose God or not. Now, that leads us to the second one. That is the priesthood of all believers. These are kind of in a logical order. And and here's the logical order. If you and I are responsible before God as moral, free moral agents, meaning God has given us the ability to, to know right and wrong and to choose right and wrong and will hold us accountable for the choices that we make, then by the powerful work of Jesus on the cross, those who follow Jesus in faith and repentance become priests, meaning that before God, they have complete unfettered access as followers of Christ. Every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And the church is a fellowship of priests serving together under the Lordship of Christ. Let me say that again. This is the definition of priesthood of all believers. Every believer has direct access to God through Jesus Christ. And the church is a fellowship of priests serving together under the Lordship of Christ. This is something that Jesus ushers in with the new covenant. In the old covenant, there were priests that stood between God and man in a religious sense. There was a king that stood between God and man in a political sense. But now Jesus is our priest and our king. He has made a way to the Father for us. And in doing so, he has made us priests, not just me, a pastor, not just our elders as overseers of the congregation, but everyone who is in Christ is a priest in Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have the same access to God that I do. And sometimes people will come and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. And I'm always happy to do that. So I'm glad to. Then occasionally someone will say something like this, because I know God listens to you. I know you're something along the lines of thinking that my prayers are somehow special. Folks, I have no direct access. I have no more direct access to God than you do. I don't have like some special phone number that I call. We all have access, as believers, have access to God as priests. This is why we believe in the priesthood of every believer. This access is unlimited. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is kind of making this case of the transition from the ineffective old covenant to the fully effective new covenant. And he writes this in Hebrews 9. He says, but when Christ, this is starting in verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, our high priest, accomplished something that the old covenant priests could not accomplish, granting an access to us that is unfettered, that is unlimited. And we all share in this. So we all have are, are competent. We have soul freedom to, to follow God. And then if we do follow God, he gives us full access. There isn't some type of hierarchy 
within the church of God where some people have more access than others. Now, you think, why is this important? Remember, we're talking about Baptist distinctives. Why is this important for us? It's important for us to remember what we came out of. We came out of, in the Reformation, a hierarchical system that said the Pope in Rome has greater access than everyone else in the world. And then next in line to him, the cardinals and the bishops and the priests in their in, in each of their churches have greater access than the members of their churches. And that, that these, these Catholic priests and, and bishops and cardinals and ultimately the Pope stand between God and man. But that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we have a mediator and he's not on this earth. He's Jesus. And that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, the eternal mediator between God and man. So we can come to God through Jesus. We don't need a human outside of Jesus, fully God and fully man. We don't need a human still left walking this earth temporally to stand between us and God. We have full access. And this is what something that makes... Baptists and other people similar to us, distinct in the world of Christianity, that you don't have to come to me to confess sins. You don't have to come to one of our elders to, to be absolved of sin or to offer some type of prayer. You don't have to go through some saint long dead. We go straight to God himself. Number three, we believe in a regenerate church membership. Now, we've dealt with this some already when we were thinking about the keys to the kingdom and the authority of the church. And so I'm going to just be brief here and we're going to come back to that idea in a minute. But we don't believe that babies, even though we love having them here, and we believe that they're a blessing from the Lord. It's one of our core beliefs that we believe that children are a blessing from the Lord. They're not to be put away into a corner. We want them in our worship services. We want them in our Bible studies. We want them learning about Christian things, but we don't believe that they are part of the church. We don't believe people who have attended our church for a very long time that have never made a public profession of faith in Jesus are members of our church. Only the regenerate are members of our church. And who are regenerate? Jesus defines the regenerate for us. Back in John 3 with this discussion with Nicodemus, starting in verse 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly I say, to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So who is it that is part of the kingdom of God? Those who have been regenerated, those who have been born again, those who have been born of the flesh and the Spirit, those who God has caused to be born again. That's who's part of the church. And we have a membership that should be made up fully of Christians. And this is the assumption of New Testament authors. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes in verse 3, Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And you skip to verse 23. He says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter is assuming that the church he is writing to, while sure there are children present, while sure there may even be unregenerate people present, they are not actually members of that royal priesthood. They're not members of that local 
body. Though we are many members, the Apostle Paul says, we are one body in Christ in Romans chapter 12. Individual members of one another. To be a part of that body requires someone having come to Christ through faith and repentance. This is why we practice believers' baptism. Baptism after someone professes faith in Jesus and not infant baptism, baptism, infant baptism, baptism before that in hopes that they will one day do so. We don't admit people into membership of our church until they have a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Number four, I'm going to do these two. There's two that really kind of go together, and that's congregationalism and local church autonomy. Now, we've already talked about congregationalism at length. We spent a whole session talking about where, um, where, where, where the church makes decisions together. But coupled with that is this idea that the decisions that the church makes together in Baptist life, to be a distinct within Baptist life, we believe that the decisions that that local church makes together are the most important decisions that that church can make. That the, the local church is the final human authority over the, the gathering of that body. That there is no greater decision-making body that can tell that church what to do. Now, this certainly makes us distinct with even within Protestant Christianity. Most, um, most Christians, most Protestant Christians around the world are a part of denominations that have some kind of tiered structure where a, a hierarchy group uh, is able to tell individual churches what to do. And Baptists say, no. We're congregational and we believe in local church autonomy, meaning decisions are going to be made at the local level. And not only are they going to be made at the local level, th- that those are the all, there's no check against that. It is what it is that when we make a decision, there's nobody else that can come in and say, oh no, that was the, the wrong choice. That the local church is the one that has been given the keys of the kingdom. So we're the ones who admit people upon credible professions of faith, like Jesus says in Matthew 16, that we have that authority, that we're the ones that, that are able to regulate the membership of the church by practicing biblical church discipline, as we see in Matthew 18, that this is what the church does. And then the New Testament model is not someone outside the church telling the church what to do, but it's the church making decisions together. We see this in several places. One of them is in Acts chapter 6 when the early church had grown to the point where they needed some men to serve in certain capacities to to make sure certain things were being done within the church. And the apostles put it before the congregation for the congregation to decide who would do this and how they would do it. And we're told there that that this, this found favor with the congregation and the congregation affirmed that decision of the apostles. And then that's what they did. We see in Acts 13, congregations commissioning people for specific tasks. The the Apostle Paul and his partner in ministry, Barnabas, were set aside by a church, the church at Antioch in Acts chapter 13. They laid hands on them and set them apart for the mission. They didn't write to Jerusalem, where most of the apostles still were, and say, should we send these guys on mission to the Gentiles? No. This local church said, we hold the keys to the kingdom. We're going to send these men out on mission with the gospel to the Gentiles. We see congregations agreeing together on the way on the beliefs that they should have and the practices they should have. You know, Paul and Barnabas come back from that missionary journey and 
They've seen a lot of Gentiles come to faith and word actually gets to Jerusalem and there grows this disagreement about how Jewish are we going to expect these Gentile Christians to be for them to actually be Christian. And so a debate arises and, and the leaders start talking back and forth some in, in Acts 15. But I just want to draw your attention to, to one thing in Acts 15 and verse 30. After they've kind of made their decision, it says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This is the letter that was from the apostles in, the, in Jerusalem. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. What is it that Paul and Barnabas did? They went back to this local church and they said, do you agree with this? <laughs> do, do, are, is this what we're going to do? Now they did. They agreed that there was biblical wisdom in what the, um, uh, what the Jerusalem church was, was saying, what the was kind of founders of the church were saying. But they didn't defer to them simply out of position. They rejoiced in the encouragement that they were willing to accept Gentiles into the church, which, by the way, the church of Antioch and its representatives and Paul and Barnabas were already doing, without requiring them to become Jews. They weren't forcing Judaism on them, but were recognizing them as Gentile Christians. And it was the local church that was doing this autonomous. They, they were seeking to be in partnership with others. They were seeking to be in agreement with others. But no one was telling the church what to do. The church was simply doing it. They were making decisions together independently. And that's the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. Even as the Apostle Paul is writing to the New Testament churches and other apostles are writing to New Testament churches, they're appealing to them on behalf of the gospel. They're not commanding them. They're not appealing to their position and saying, you have to listen to me. They're making an argument for the congregation to then decide, are they going to listen or not? Finally, is religious liberty. In the Baptist Faith and Message, we read this about religious liberty, that God alone is Lord of the conscience, and He has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to His word and not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. If there's any mark that Baptists have made on, on um, uh, American and Western ideals, it's this, re religious liberty. Uh, Baptists were, for a very long time, uh, the lone voice in the wilderness crying against state-sponsored church. It started all the way back in England, when the first English Baptist, John Smith, said that the magistrate is not by virtue of his office to meddle with religion or matters of conscience, to force or compel men to do this or that form of doctrine, but to leave Christian religion free to every man's conscience and to handle only civil transgressions. His partner was Thomas and he said, We do not freely profess that our Lord the King hath no more power over their Roman Catholic's conscience than over ours, and that is none at all. Let people be heretics, Turks, Jews, or whatever. It is not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. So the very first Baptists 
and we're going back several hundred years at this point in England, our spiritual ancestors looked at the king, looked at the magistrate and said, you have no place in the church, that we are free from the state and equally important that everyone is free from the state as it relates to their religion. And so, yes, we would, we would say that we would hope every person in our country would come to faith in Jesus, but that our country would never force anyone to come to faith in Jesus because a country can't force anyone to come in, to faith in Jesus. That our country would never, that our country would honor religious freedom and allow people to worship, but our country would never raise one religion over another. That everyone, whoever they are, in his uh, hundreds of years ago, right? What, what did Helwes say? Be them heretics or Turks, which would be Muslims or Jews or whatever. It's not for the state to decide. There is freedom that we find in Christ. And so we stand firm in that freedom that everyone has the ability then to choose. We who are called by Scripture in Romans 12 to as far as it depends on us to live peaceably with all. Look to all. Proclaim the gospel to all. Tell all that they are responsible before God to follow the teachings of Jesus and to come to faith in Him, but never to force that on anyone. And the fact that so many hold that ideal in our culture, most have no idea that it traces back Baptists standing firm and alone in many cases and saying everyone should have this freedom. So what I want you to do is take a five-minute break and when you um, come back we will talk about what does it mean to cooperate as Baptists. So take just a five-minute break and then come back and press play. All right are we back? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about we're, the, the whole idea, right, is distinct. So I went, I know I went very fast through there. And we talked a lot of, uh, about a lot of things that uh, some of which touched on some subjects that we've already talked about this uh, time around. Some of them aren't things that we've talked about, but we've got this idea of this is kind of what it means to be Baptist. And we are a kind of a specific brand of Baptist. And when I say specific brand, I'm not necessarily talking about Southern Baptist, even though I'm going to end there, is that really there, there are two distinct trees of Baptist life um, over the last couple of hundred years. One is independent Baptist. And when I say independent Baptist, you have to remember that all Baptist churches are independent all Baptist churches, we believe in local church autonomy, as I've talked about before the break. All Baptist churches are independent in that no, there's no outside uh, authority that tells them what to do. But they are independent in that they do not collect together in conventions or organizations. Independent Baptist churches, and there are independent Baptist churches in our community, they make decisions as a church, just as we would make decisions as a church, but they don't 
they intentionally don't choose to cooperate with something like the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC of Virginia, the Pillar Network, some of these things that we cooperate with. They select missionaries of their own that they're going to support. They, they select Bible literature publishers of their own that they'll support. Uh, and so you have that kind of version of Baptist life, and these are often known as independent, sometimes independent fundamental Baptists, even though not all independent Baptists are independent fundamental Baptists. Many of them are. And then you have our kind of tree of Baptist life, and that is Baptists who have chosen to work within cooperation with others. Um, and within that side of Baptist life, which is far larger uh, than the independent side, there are numerous Baptist conventions. And I use the term convention instead of denomination, even though denomination is certainly the more common word. And it's not really a wrong word to use, but it will often give the wrong connotation because a denomination uh, at its core is about a, a organization that either owns or at least in part instructs the churches below it. And that is not what Baptist conventions do. Baptist conventions are bottom-up organizations instead of top-down organizations. And so we like to refer to this as cooperation. That's why we call it a convention and not a denomination. Is because we make a choice as a local body of believers... As an autonomous local church, we make a choice to cooperate with other like-minded Baptist churches. Now, we really kind of do that surrounding two ideas. The first is cooperation around doctrinal truths. So early in Baptist life, we're going back to the 1600s at this point, uh, early in Baptist life, it seemed to, to be necessary uh, to kind of our spiritual forefathers in, still in England, uh, to come together for the purpose of saying this is what Baptists in England believe. Now, it wasn't what all Baptists in England believed, uh, but they put forth what was known as the London Baptist Confession. They actually did this twice. There was the first one in 1644, the second one in 1689. Um, and the reason I make mention of the two uh, is because 1644 was a little more inclusive. You could say that the 1644 London Baptist Confession really did say what Baptists in London or in England believed. Um, and then in 1689, it was what some Baptists in London believed because Baptists in London began to split between uh, general Baptists and particular Baptists. General Baptists being um, Baptists that were less Reformed, less Calvinistic, that uh, did not believe in uh, limited atonement. And then particular Baptists that were more Calvinistic, more Reformed, and did believe in limited atonement. And the London Baptist Confession of 1689 is a far more particular Baptist document than the 1644, which was a compromise. So even there in our early kind of foundings in England, we, we kind of begin to see Baptists splitting along um, doctrinal lines and forming kind of their own doctrinal camps. And we still do that today. Once it gets to the United States in 1742, there's the first uh, Baptist Confession of Faith in America in the New World, which is called the Philadelphia Confession. In 1833 was the New Hampshire Baptist Confession. Uh, the Philadelphia Confession was a revision of the London Baptist. New Hampshire was the first like from scratch written Confession of Faith. Uh, it, from the United States. And then for Southern Baptists, 
our first confession of faith was in 1925, uh, revised in 1963, revised minorly in 1998, and then revised more fully in 2000. The 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, uh, which has now stood for 22 years, is the official statement of faith of our church, the official statement of faith of the Southern Baptist Convention, the SBC of Virginia, uh, and the official statement of faith of most Southern Baptist churches, and even the official statement of faith of some independent churches. You don't have to be Southern Baptist to affirm uh, the, the Baptist faith and message. But why do this? Well, they, they begin to see the need to, to say, these are the things that we all agree on. And never were these things enforced upon churches. So the Southern Baptist Convention, let's just start um, locally, the Southern Baptist Convention doesn't force the affirmation of the Baptist faith and message on the Southern Baptist on Southern Baptist churches, meaning you can participate in the Southern Baptist Convention and disagree with parts of the Baptist faith and message. And that is true historically. Historically, even though churches would get together and draft these confessions, they were they were never enforceable on the churches because churches were able to, to lean on their autonomy and say, we're, we're autonomous. We're independent. We, we don't have to do what you say we have to do. We don't have to believe what you say that we believe, but it's important for us to cooperate, uh, cooperate around these doctrinal truths. That's kind of step one in our cooperation, because if we're going to do anything else, we have to have a framework of belief in which we will operate. And these historic Baptist confessions serve as a means by which we can agree, and which is what it does today. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 is the doctrinal framework by which um, tens of thousands of Southern Baptist churches in North America agree. Um, now again, I, not every Southern Baptist church, not every church that cooperates with the Southern Baptist Convention agrees with every single point of it. Um, most of us agree with most of it. Some agree with all of it, but most of us agree with just about everything in there. Maybe have one or two little uh, minor caveats or things we'd rather have explained, things that maybe we wouldn't have written in there if it was us or we would write in there if it was us. But this is a broad. these are broad doctrinal statements that give... Uh, cover to a large tent of people to come in and say, we're going to cooperate together. So we'll cooperate around these do doctrinal truths so that we can cooperate to ac accomplish kingdom initiatives. This is the point of Baptist conventions, whether it's the Southern Baptist Convention, the American Baptist Convention, uh, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, uh, and there, there are numerous ones that we would have similarities with, some that we would have significant disagreements with. But the reason historically Baptists have chosen to cooperate together first along these doctrinal lines, but, but then moving forward to accomplish kingdom initiatives, there, there are things we want to do. For Southern Baptists, this goes back to 1845 and the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention for the purpose of missions. That the, the appeal was we want to send missionaries. And so churches started working together to send missionaries. And it was like almost 70 years from the time they started sending missionaries to the time we actually started meeting annually. They had what was called the Triannual Convention for quite a while. They were meeting every three years. It wasn't until 1919 that the SBC actually started meeting every single year. And then that cooperation bled down into states, and most states now have Baptist conventions. Our state happens to have two. 
um, that uh, are connected to the Southern Baptist Convention. There's the Legacy Virginia Baptist Convention, which is known as uh, the BGAV, the uh, Baptist General Convention, Baptist General Association of Virginia. Um, we are not a part of that one. We are a part of the newer of the two, which uh, is only was founded in 1996. So that makes it uh, 20 something years old. I don't know, uh, 27 years old. And uh, it's the SBC of Virginia. There's about 700. I think we've now crossed into 800 churches in uh, the state of Virginia that are a part of the SBC of Virginia. Last year, our church, um, even more narrowly, uh, uh, cooperates now with what is known as the Pillar Network, which is kind of an association of churches that's not uh, regionally based, but is uh, based on some principles, things that we believe that not all Southern Baptist churches believe, like elder leadership, expository preaching, live preaching in the worship uh, in, in the worship service. These things that we hold true in our church, and so we're cooperating with these others. But but why do why do we do these things? We do these things because we believe, and Baptists historically have believed, or at least cooperating Baptists have believed that there are things we can do together better than we can do apart. That, that there are just certain things that there's going to be easier and, and done, done better if, if we say, okay, around these doctrinal distinctives, Baptist Faith and Message, London Baptist, uh, New Hampshire Baptist, whatever it is, that this is going to be what we agree on. And so because we agree on them, we can work together on a couple of things. And those really couple of things historically have been missions and education. That Southern Baptists and, and Baptists cooperating in general have done so uh, for the purpose of missions and education. That we send missionaries, both internationally uh, and uh, nationally, we, we tend to call North American missionaries church planters, so they're planting churches in our context, and we call international missionaries, missionaries, because they're planting churches or spreading the gospel or teaching theology or whatever they do in a, in a foreign context. Um, but really, they're all missionaries, and we're cooperating with other Baptist churches. We're giving together with other Baptist churches so that people, so that people can hear the gospel and believe the gospel and can, healthy churches can be planted and, and, um, and, and right doctrine can be taught in those churches, and then we can leave, and we can go do that do that somewhere else. And that's why our convention exists. One, to do missions, and the others to do education. Um, because each church, sometimes a church is very small. Maybe the church doesn't have a whole lot of resources. Uh, and so knowing how to train pastors or being able to find a pastor if something were to happen, if a pastor were to leave or a pastor were to die, knowing how to find a pastor. Maybe there's not someone in the congregation that's, that's qualified to preach or uh, on, on a regular basis. And so we set up seminaries, and we now have six seminaries uh, in Southern Baptist life that uh, faithfully train uh, men and women, men to be pastors, but women for other works of ministry, um, in all six of our seminaries, according to the Baptist faith and message. So they have to, everybody that teaches there teaches in accordance with that. Um, so that we can then have well-trained and well-equipped pastors and ministers and even lay people often go to seminary, missionaries. Like this is why they exist. So we believe that we can do missions and education better together than we could do it on our own. So we choose to do that. Now, we've also seen that's true in some administrative things. 
um, you know, in, in this world that we live in where, you know, employer provided insurance and that sort of thing. So the Southern Baptist Convention's gotten together, kind of do those things. Uh, historically, um, Baptists have also organized together to publish. That's kind of part of that education thrust. And so we do that. We have Lifeway Christian Resources, which publishes things like the Gospel Project that we use on Sunday mornings. But all of this is so we can get together. All of this is so that we can, we can cooperate together to achieve uh, kingdom initiatives in a way that goes beyond ourselves. So we give in our church to the cooperative program. We give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. We give to the North American Missions offering. Knowing that, we'll never meet some of these missionaries. We'll never meet some of these church planters. But we can believe that they're being trained in doctrinally sound ways to go and proclaim the gospel and to establish doctrinally sound churches in North America and around the world. That, that's why we do uh, what we do. It does not make us non-independent. We could, as a church, vote to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. It's, it's a pretty significant vote. Uh, it's a vote I hope we never have to take. It's a, a vote I hope we never even have to consider. And according to our bylaws, it would require, um, a, it would require a lot out of us. It would require just about everybody showing up. Uh, every single one of our members being here to vote because we think it's that important of a decision that it's probably the hardest thing to do in our bylaws, but it's still possible to do. So if the Southern Baptist Convention would just go off the rails, we would get everybody up here and we would make the decision to leave and there would be nothing they could do uh, to tell us not to. Because again, it's not about top down, it's about bottom up that we are contributing to the to the. Um, cooperative work so that we can send missionaries, plant churches, educate pastors, ministry leaders, missionaries, and that sort of thing. Um, and this doesn't violate our conscience of local church autonomy. It doesn't violate the conscience of congregationalism because those things aren't threatened. We're choosing, we're electing to be a part, and we could elect to leave if we wanted to leave. So what I want to do is uh, just say uh, a couple of parting things, and then hopefully there's still some time and you guys will have uh, one kind of broad application question for you to discuss. I want you to think, so as I talk, you think of something you learned in the eight weeks of this course that has challenged or changed the way that you view the church. I hope at least something has stood out to you and you say, I never thought about it like that. Maybe it's something you want to read more about. Maybe it's something you want to talk more about. Maybe as you go into the next session and, and these we keep doing these quarterly rotations, uh, maybe one of the other classes is going to talk about it even more fully or help you uh, be able to discuss it with the people that are in your group. So I hope there's at least one thing, and I want you to be able to talk about what that is here in just a minute. I just I want you to know, I just want to wrap this all of this up by saying uh, ecclesiology, the study of the church, is vital. It's really important. Uh, there's times that people would look at it, and maybe this was you when you started this eight weeks ago. There are times people would look at it and wonder why it's important. Why does it matter how we do this? Isn't it important enough that we just come down here on Sunday mornings? I mean, if I come down here on Sunday mornings and we sing a little bit, we pray a little bit, somebody gets up and preaches, and what they're preaching is from the Bible, isn't that what really matters? Well, it is. It's important for us to know. But I hope what you've seen is that the local church has great authority. We are, as I said last week, the, the, embassy, the embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. We are the local expression of God's people here in this place. And what we do, what we say we do, how we organize ourselves, 
how we guard who is a part of us and who isn't, how we select who leads us, how we hold them accountable and how they hold us accountable. All of these things matter. So I hope these last eight weeks have been beneficial to you. I've so greatly enjoyed teaching. Again, I'm sorry that I wasn't been able to be there, but I'm actually talking about some of these same things with our church plant in Rwanda because our goal is what? To establish a, lo- a healthy local church there in that place that um, flourishes and is independent. And Lord willing, according to His providence, stays until the Lord Jesus returns and maybe plants many more churches like them in that in that country. So you pray for me, um, and I would challenge you to talk about this question. I'm going to pray, and then you can talk, and when it's time to go, you can go. God, thank you for the eight weeks that you gave us to spend together. Thank you, God, uh, for the instructions that you've given to your local church, that you've entrusted with us the keys to your kingdom. You've, in, you've instilled with us the congregation, the assembly, the authority, God, to bind on earth and to bind in heaven. God, would we do so um, as, as your emissaries here at this embassy that is Nansman River Baptist Church, we pray. Help us to continue to seek biblical fidelity in the life of our church. Make us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.